0: I would love to know if you agree with me, but I just don't think we've seen it at this sort of level of people-powered content creation that's directly influencing Hollywood.
1: How do we leverage each other? How do we actually cross audiences? What can we do?
2: So my burning question is the question of how to expand network across geography and across other
3: barriers that keep people from being in relationships. Welcome to Wonderland, where we explore the connections between pop culture, human nature, and social change. I'm Bridget Antoinette Evans.
0: And I'm Tracy Van Slyke.
3: A quick warning. This episode includes some adult language. If you're at work or listening with young ones, now might be a good time to reach for those headphones. Now let's get started.
0: In our last episode, TV critic Shanti Collins and activist artist Nayantara Sen went deep into pop culture. They talked about the tropes and traps that dominate our screens and seep into our collective consciousness.
1: We want countries and societies that are about community building and partnership and deep alliance and and solidarity. And our narratives don't reflect that on TV Today, we're
3: excited to bring you a special two-part episode. In the first part, Tracy will talk with sci-fi expert Sean Taylor about how fandoms are influencing the entertainment industry.
0: And in part two, we pair Alicia Garza of Black Lives Matter with Kenyatta Cheese, an internet innovator. Together, they'll discuss what movements can learn from fandoms, especially how they can better engage in audiences to change our culture.
3: I feel like fandoms are one of the least explored areas of work in this field. What is it that brought you to it, Tracy? And what makes you most fascinated about the the world of fandoms?
0: Yeah, fans are coming together across the digital water cooler, whether it's live tweeting a show or forming their own space online, Facebook groups, Tumblrs, to dive into the content of a show, to talk about the characters, to reimagine those stories, and even sometimes embodying those characters and those values of those shows and the movies they love into their real world. Fandoms are upending and changing the pop culture industry itself, which can lead to dramatic political change. And I can't wait to talk about it with today's guest.
1: Uh, My name is Sean Taylor. Um, I'm one of the co-founding authors of the nerdsofcolor.org and one of the founders of the Black Comics Arts Festival. And I teach.
3: We have long admired Sean. He is a writer, a pop culture scholar, a self-identified Afro geek, and an active leader in the fandom and sci-fi community. And he is a huge advocate for a kind of pop culture that represents its audiences, especially women and people of color.
0: Yes, so Sean and I started nerding out right away and uh, started talking about why pop culture is so important to him.
1: I mean, I think a lot of it is just how um, I build community. I mean, I don't care gender, sexuality. I don't really care anything class. It's really about your pop culture diet. And I really believe it's a diet. And if, you know, if there's certain things that you are allowing into your space culturally that I find detrimental or destructive I really can't rock with you it's just not gonna happen you know I teach a lot work with a lot of youth you know I spent god almost 16 years in adolescent mental health and juvenile justice and I've used pop culture especially superhero culture I would say every single day on the job I used it as as a healing tool you know, using comic book stories as, hey, you know what? Let's look at what Spider-Man did. And it may seem cliche and corny on the outside, but when you get these students to understand and see reflections of not themselves so much because comic books are still an adolescent white boy power fantasy. We have to be honest about it. But when we start seeing the more of the mythic themes that are inherent in storytellers, like I couldn't sit down with us with a student or with a client and talk about Homer. Or, you know, the Odyssey, Iliad, anything. But I can show those mythic themes in other forms of contemporary popular culture for them to be able to identify with. And that's been invaluable in my work with other people.
0: I find that so interesting, Sean, because what you're talking about is not just the stories, but the experiences that people have with those stories. The sort of internal transformative stories and for me right now, it's like, I don't have a particular pop culture obsession. What I have is um, sort of a obsession with trying to experience pop culture in certain ways. And right now, one of my foremost um, sort of priorities is how am I experiencing pop culture with my six year old, because he's already coming to me when he sees kids shows and he's like, why are all the people white? Why are there no brown kids? I've said before that I'm very impressed by his media literacy, but like really heartbroken that he is not seeing himself reflected.
1: I get that so much, too. I have a nine-year-old and a nine-year-old girl and she's just looking around like, Daddy, I don't see anything. And so, I mean, I'm working on right now a remixed fairy tale book to like to really talk about because, you know, these fairy tales are so like, why does the driven snow? My daughter's like, "Um, I'm a Jamaican, Puerto, Puerto Rican and Filipino. This is not me. (laughs) Right. And so I think that sometimes waiting for uh, the agents of capital to to uh, include you is not you're going to be waiting a long ass time, whereas you have. to, And now the barrier to entry is almost non-existent. I mean, a computer is expensive. I mean, but outside of that, the barrier to entry is like you can create your own shit. And you don't have to go the Hollywood route and you don't have to try to salivate and like, oh, please, Hollywood, give me the teeth. Like, no, I don't care about that anymore because I I have a movie studio in my pocket. I have an audio studio in my pocket so I can create what I want for my daughter.
0: Which is, I think, one of the most powerful roles that we're seeing fans play right now, actually, both on like the individual level where you're like, I can create and probably outcreate you, Hollywood, actually. in uh, <laughs> the kind of stories that are actually going to resonate with a whole set of people, communities, and demographics that they are still not producing for or even like thinking about. And I think that's one of the most exciting parts of pop culture right now is that we're breaking down sort of the corporate institutional barriers and people are creating their own amazing stories, remixing old content, creating new content that is actually challenging Hollywood um, in terms of audience numbers sometimes, but also even forcing them to create differently.
1: And also, too, there's this ugly competition, I think, with uh, unrecognized groups or underrepresented groups where it's like, okay, now it's the Asian's turn. Now it's the Arab woman's turn. Now it's the queer turn. And like, we're actually like, turn, fuck a turn. It's like, we all can take a turn at the exact same time because we're gonna actually create together. And that's what we're gonna do. I think that's what's been really great about some of the work that I've seen. You see Arab folks and queer folks and Latin folks, API folks in the same room how do we leverage each other? How do we actually cross audiences? What can we do? You know, what little media venture can we create together as opposed to, you know, once again, it's like a really, like a like a, a psychically detrimental flip book. It's like brr, one page, you go brr, again. And it's like, we're only halfway getting through the motions. But I think that what we're doing now is you don't have to complain anymore. And grant, granted, we should be pushing giant companies to, to, represent but we don't have to sit there and wait
0: right we have the power both of creativity and i love how you're talking about how people are like coming together in one room literally um to create together but also there is this power of um sort of self-organizing that a lot of fans are coming together to not just like sort of sit idly by and watch the sort of Uh, the terrible stereotypes being reinforced over and over (laughs) again. Um, I think we could say, for example, that fans brought down, I would say, Netflix Iron Fist and Ghost in the Shell, right? Like for the, the Asian whitewashing. And they did it across Twitter with hashtag campaigns, fan art, and blog posts that spread across the fan community. All of this was directly calling out the producers and generating pressure that resulted in a lot of bad press and low audience numbers.
1: Mm-hmm. And that's not complaining to me. That's actually taking action exactly. because you know I'm I'm in these circles a lot. And I am I'm in certain rooms where everybody is just like, oh please Marvel, oh please DC, oh please Hollywood, notice me. Then in other rooms are like, you know what? I have a Wacom tablet and a laptop. I'm about to get busy right now. And so I think there's something really beautiful about the energy that's behind it. And, you know, on the flip side, you know, we got to be honest, like just because you're a marginalized person and you put out work doesn't mean we have to like it. And there's been that pressure, too. It's like, no, make your shit good.
3: Can we talk about specific sites of energy or power building that are happening in pop culture right now? Um, What is particularly powerful, disruptive like a peek into the next gen of pop culture, whether it's in television, film, you know, gaming, whatever medium, where are you seeing the energy begin to build? And particularly in the context of social change.
1: I think we're finding resistance lessons that have already existed in popular culture, especially in science fiction and its offsprings, and that we're actually being able to get to the nuggets and the kernels of what's actually already embedded in there, and now we're be, we're be able to take that and disaggregate it from this actual presentation and just take the lesson and I can't tell you how many how many emails I get that have people are looking at you know people who are using Batman as a way for physical and mental fitness, and people are actually responding and using these things and getting back into embodied pop,
0: yeah, one of my most exciting things that I've been doing a little bit of work on and thinking about with a group of people hosted a Twitter chat around superheroes of color. Uh, Miss Marvel, who's a Muslim teen superhero, to Miss America, who's a Latina X superheroine who can, like, punch through dimensional walls. And she's queer. And she's queer, yeah. yeah. And um, Moon Girl, which I've been trying to introduce my son to, who is, a, like, a 10-year-old black girl who... Is like the smartest person in the entire universe. But what I really, really have seen is correlation between these superheroes of color and the superheroes of social justice, who are mm-hmm. often uh, women of color who are leading the way. Um, people like Aijin Poo, we've, who we've had as a guest before, Linda Sarsour. I've seen a lot of energy around these characters, around mm-hmm. that and that concept. And that's the kind of energy that we really want to sort of build and the kind of normalizing of the kind of women that we want in the in front of and leading these movements for social change
1: there's there's something that's really important about pop culture that we all agree i mean you go to a movie theater like i want to go see the new power rangers film which surprisingly didn't suck but like hearing everybody in the theater at the same time laugh at the same time gas at the same time there's there's a powerful connective it's like our last campfire that we have you know, we don't have we don't tell stories on the campfire anymore. I think we should go back to that. That'd be wonderful. But being that, and being in the same room with people, and people people talked about the film afterwards. When you get into a space with other people who geek out about what you geek out about, 19 hours you're like, oh shit, I gotta go home. Like the, the day disappears because of of that energy. And it will, it may be the pop culture thing that connects you, but that one thing that connects you actually connects you to something way larger than just the isness of whatever that particular cultural artifact was. And then you start seeing the commonalities and the humanity and everything. I mean, there's people now who I met through Dungeons & Dragons 30 years ago. I'm the godfather to their children now because of that. And that, that was our initial spark, but the love that exists outside of it, I mean, that's the entry point. The pop culture is the entry point, but the love and the humanity is really the receipts from the entry point. So now, imagine turning that same passion into social change. Like I'm looking at, you know, because how many sci-fi narratives are about resistance? Right. I mean, or <laughs>
0: or about or about imagining a different future. Right?
1: Absolutely.
0: That is, to me, exactly what you're what you're pulling in is this sense of sort of mythology of spirituality in some ways that pop culture and storytelling can foster, right? And the spirituality is not just about this individual absorption of a story, but the actual sort of connection across many people. And that's why I think fandoms and the power of people in pop culture are not talked about enough. but are are, And is one of the most important elements of, of why social movements should be fascinated and investing in pop culture. Because this is where fans of pop culture, people who are actively involved in these story worlds who are living them out in certain ways. That's the kind of passion we need to be tapping into. There's so many people who are finding themselves through pop culture. And also, from a movement perspective, you know, organizations are like, okay, we got to like build a list of X amount of people and we need to get them to sign X amount of petitions. And they don't, necessarily understand the really fluid, nimble, creative nature of fandoms and don't understand how to actually start um, building relationships. Because there's a lot of aligned values. There's a lot of aligned passions. And that spirituality that happens in the pop culture world could actually be harnessed together. (laughs) <laughs> with the social change movements we want to create, the values we care about, the issues and communities we care about. But we haven't figured out on the movement side how to create that bridge with fan communities. And I think it's a big mistake on our part. And I really feel like those kinds of relationships could change the game, in a, not only on on the political level, but how movements actually operate. I think there's a benefit on both sides because I think a lot of organizations probably have a lot of, like, information and insights on issues mm-hmm. they care about that they may not be getting access. They'd be loved to be trained more around organizing and so forth, but we can't just sort of walk into different fan communities and be like, this is how you do it because fan communities are already creating their own content. They're already influencing Hollywood in ways that social movements can only dream about right now.
1: And they're safe there. I think a lot of times fan communities come up for not to so much a sense of let's all um, get together because we like the same thing. But it's like, this is how we generate safety. I mean, what I was at, uh, I guess it was Silicon Valley last year, Silicon Valley Comic Con, uh, Nerds of Color had a panel. But walking to the panel, there's all these signs, you know, cosplay isn't consent. And a guy grabbed, you know, kind of like patted this girl's butt. And then next thing you know, like five women snatched this guy up and launched him out of the door. And I'm like, that is the dopest thing I ever saw in my life. Like that is incredible. Um, but I think and those are things, and you know, they may seem like a small a small incident, but we're talking about consent. We're talking about body agency right there. We're talking about all these things that everybody probably is alignment on, but we haven't taxonomized it to death. We haven't like like disaggregated to every little tiny thing that could have stepped up in that interaction. It was the guy made an action that was stupid, he got checked for it, and that's the exchange, but inside of it, there are so many other lessons to be learned. And other men saw that, and I think it, was, it had a really positive effect. And I think being able to use that example, which I do with a lot of my students, and so we really having to dig deeper based off one small interaction. And I think also what um, social movements can help fandom with is to not be in the shadows so much. I think that's something that social movements can teach fandom, is how to be more uh, culturally and socially aspirational. How do we infuse joy and whimsy? Well, other two ways, because I think that joy and whimsy and humor is missing in social movements. That's what I think fandom can teach. But I also think it can be recursive and then social change can be looked at as something joyful. doesn't have to be a slog. It doesn't have to be, oh, we're going to go put on the armor. It could be like that one, I think that sister was from, a uh, Palestinian sister, I think she was in England, who laughed at the Nazi guy in his face as opposed to yelling at him. I was like, I want to buy her dinner. I want to buy her a puppy. I want to do whatever I can because it was, I'm like, that's what I'm talking about because it's so easy to fall into despair when the world is despairing. But being able to actually move through the world in an, in an aspirational, pro-whimsy, pro-joy manner, there's nothing more revolutionary than that as far as I'm concerned.
0: Okay, how do we do that? I'm like, like this is like, no, literally, <laughs> like this is what I'm obsessed about. Like, we've been piloting sort of Twitter conversations between fan communities and sort of social movement leaders. Just as like, what does it look like to talk to each other and have bring both of those communities together? But That's just one layer. I mean, do we need to get sort of people like literally in rooms together?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think that's part of it too because it's the anonymity that the digital space provides provides a certain level of reticence, I think, as well. I mean, things more like that, more spaces and more times and opportunities where we can actually be in the same room Mm -hmm. together or you go to their spaces.
0: So what I really like sort of vision sometimes is to like have a set of um, organizers sort of go into a bunch of different cons and sort of real world spaces and just like listen for a little bit, not trying to like come in with a like particular agenda, but to really listen and really tune into like what, what's making people really passionate about that particular story world or genre, um, where people's sense of play, where is their sense of creativity, uh, what's really um, frustrating them, um, doing that sort of deep listening, and then sort of figuring out the relationship building. And I think of what that could look like, because I think there could be so much power in... The opportunity of you know whether it's creating sort of campaigns together or creating story worlds together, mm-hmm. but to start with the listening, then to sort of like the relationship building. I
1: mean, what's the mutual benefit? I think would, was is, is yeah. the baseline question. It's like you come to this space, you want our our social capital, but what do we get? I mean, not something what do you get in a, in a in a mercenary way, but what's the exchange? But I think even going back, I think for me, I would think the relationship building would almost happen before the listening in a way. But I would love to see, I would love to see a group of, of social changers and a group of fan people watch the same piece of whatever it is. Like, you know, when Buffy's mom dies, right? Mm-hmm. Whatever. And then figure out how are we watching it from where we stand and where you stand? What's the standpoint theory behind each viewing? And then having a conversation about that like you know say we all watched attack the block which if you haven't seen it stop this right now and go watch it it's like the greatest movie ever but it's like you know it asks interesting question like you know all science fiction was white middle class kids meet aliens right et all that this was what if aliens landed in the hood in england yeah and it was like the questions that are and like what happens in that movie and i would love to see how would a group of social changes talk about that film and a group of people who are sci-fi fans talk about it? I think that is great. And those would be great and conversations. Share to, and share their insights with each exactly other. Mm-hmm, what's the, Where's mm-hmm. the convergences? Where are the divergences? What are the lessons that we're getting from each other? What do we learn from each other? And then that would be, I and think like, that'd be a great can, conversation.
0: What can they imagine together? exactly. Right? Yeah, An exercise yeah, could be like, that.
1: what's the sequel we could write together from this piece that we just saw? Mm-hmm. You know, what can we what can we build together after this? I think that's a wonderful question to ask. I think it's a wonderful exercise.
0: So I think once again, sort of going back to the sort of interchange of relationships between movements and fan communities, there's so much right potential for um, learning from each other, Absolutely. creating together yeah. and like, changing the fucking world together
1: and they're actually more aligned and i think there's more convergences than we than we think but i think a lot of people who are moving are moving they're not advertising their movements Mm -hmm. you know and i think they're moving and i think that's really important so how do we get people not so much advertise and brag but like hey we're over here doing this so let's let's move this forward with more people on both sides, I think that, I think there is such a convergence point that we have to figure out how is it safe for everybody to be involved and how isn't the uniqueness of both sides disappeared in that? That's what we don't want. Absolutely. These things are, uh, not to be all Gladwellian, but at a tipping point right now, but we need to be able to be more intentional about about how we're leveraging both things because you know, we're fucked. Like the world is in a place right now where I look at my daughter, I go, I'm sorry, baby. (laughs) I'm going to try to make this world better for you. But I think that where can we inject the joy and the whimsy and the, I don't know, I guess pro-social is probably the best word to use about that because despair is easy. Joy is really freaking difficult. Wow,
3: I just want to repeat that. Despair is easy. Joy is really freaking difficult. I feel like that needs to hang in the air. Thank you for leaving us with that, Sean.
0: It is really hard to bring joy out, especially to manifest it in movements and social movements. Fandoms do that naturally. They tap into people's passions, trigger creativity, and the result can often be joyful co-creation and also self-organization and to changing the systems and changing the stories that they're so passionate about. So the question really is, how can movements learn from them? And also, as Sean and I started to talk about, What are the connection points between social movements and pop culture fandoms?
3: I have another question, which is, what would it look like if movements began to behave more like fandoms? To answer these questions, we're going to move to part two of this episode. Now, full disclosure, what you are about to hear is the very first conversation we recorded for Wonderland. It was recorded before the 2016 election, and a lot, to say the least, has changed in the social justice world since then. But so much of what these two brilliant people are talking about remains incredibly relevant.
0: So first, a little context about who they are and why we brought them together. You are about to meet one of the most influential leaders of America's racial justice movement. Black lives matter! Black lives
2: matter! My name is Alicia Garza. I'm the Special Projects Director for the National Domestic Workers Alliance and the co-creator of the Black Lives Matter Network.
0: Black Lives Matter was inspired by a post on Facebook that Alicia wrote in the wake of the George Zimmerman verdict was a love letter that I wrote to black
2: people after reading a set of narratives that I felt like really didn't capture who we were, what we were capable of, um, or what was at stake, um, given that a child was murdered and, and, and somebody got away with
3: it. And that story, that love letter, blew up. Since then, the Black Lives Matter network has grown from that brief post to a trending hashtag to a global racial justice movement.
0: Alicia came into the studio ready to talk about a challenge facing the Black Lives Matter network.
2: So my burning question is the question of how to expand network across geography and across other barriers that keep people from being in relationship.
3: We knew exactly who to pair Alicia with.
4: Uh, so, hey, my name is Kenyatta Cheese. I'm co-founder of a agency called Everybody at Once, and we develop audience uh, for TV and movies and sports and things that people love.
3: Kenyatta is the perfect person to have a conversation with Alicia about her burning question. As a former organizer and one who understands the capabilities of online communities, he has made it his business to build fandoms within the entertainment industry.
0: Okay, I'm going to admit I've been kind of a secret Kenyatta fan for a really long time. Kenyatta has built passionate fan communities of shows like Orphan Black and Doctor Who that spread across the entire world. In some of these networks, fans publish as many as 21 million posts a month. It's pretty cool.
3: Kenyatta came ready to collaborate. He wanted to know how stories move people to action within the Black Lives Matter network. Here's what Alicia said.
2: Yeah. So I'll tell two stories. Mm. (laughs) So the first one was when we saw Black Lives Matter in an episode of Law and Order SVU. And there's a protest scene that happens outside of the courthouse, which I was really disappointed in. I felt like it wasn't very lively. I was like, that's not what we're doing at all, right? And they're holding signs that say Black Lives Matter as the as the jury is making a decision.
1: Hands of those who to serve and protect, how many more have to die? No more! No more! No more! No more! Right? No.
2: And, and that was the first time that I realized that wow, this story has really permeated our popular culture networks. The second story is what happened when we put out a call for people to participate in a freedom ride to St. Louis uh, after the murder of Mike Brown. And the response was overwhelming. And what I realized in that moment was when we are able to touch hearts and minds and then connect people In that moment of profound, like, I've been moved, and now I want to do something, all kinds of amazing things can happen. So almost 600 people from across the United States and Canada jumped on buses, got in planes, drove, right? And they didn't even know each other. And then they decided that they weren't going to split up, that they were going to keep organizing. And that's how the chapters of Black Lives Matter actually emerged.
4: Well, you know, a lot of the work that we do now revolves around um, fandoms, mm-hmm. right? When we look at what people are actually interested in, they love TV shows, they love their favorite stories, but they love each other more. Mm-hmm. And so anything we can do to kind of bring two people together who may not be connected, but, we, but if we're able to see that they have similar interests, that's a lot more interesting and honestly ends up being a stronger connection than somebody who is only coming in for the sort of artifact, that story, whatever is at the center, right? Is this something where over time, the the way that you organize, the way that you support has evolved or
2: yeah so I I think that one way in which Black Lives Matter has evolved over time, particularly in relationship to the organizing, is that new chapters sprout up everywhere. And we very quickly had to figure out a way to distinguish between chapters who were aligned with our values and our narrative and chapters that were not. And, uh, I think the challenge that we've run into is that the desire outmatches our capacity. So now we're in this very strange period where we're trying to figure out what's a sustainable way to keep managing with a light touch, those connections.
4: Uh, we have two lines that we that we're kind of known for. First one is that the audience has an audience, right? Who, whenever you're talking to somebody, don't just think about them. Think about what's going to happen when they take that and share it out. Think about think about what happens when someone takes your image and takes it out of context and puts it into a new one. How are they going to use it? Um, and then this other thing is enable fans to be better fans. We, I put a lot of emphasis in my work in saying that um, whatever I put out doesn't have to be the best, it doesn't have to be the most clever, it doesn't have to be the smartest, it's my job to look for that within the network and pass that through and connect if I can, but, uh, but for the most part it's about amplification, right? Here's somebody who's amazing at Photoshop. Um, here's somebody who, who wrote a fantastic 3,000 word essay about the connection between the show, these characters, and, and these issues. By doing that, it all of a sudden creates a bunch of energy and a bunch of attention. The thing that we I have to always make sure that we don't lose is actually giving somebody an action on top of that. Because once you create that energy in somebody, once somebody has that emotional reaction, and it's about emotion, even when we say it's intellectual, it's about the way that it makes me feel, you have to give them a path for doing something about it, otherwise uh, frustration sets in.
2: We do want to expand beyond that network. The network right now is extensive and it's incredible. But there are so many more people who could and should be a part of it that aren't going to have the same degree of relationship. And so how do we create spaces where there is easy entry, even though the levels of relationships are going to be different?
4: Mm, mm. How much do you think about... Uh, when you're thinking about that first point of entry, when somebody first comes across the hashtag, when somebody first comes across a, a meme on Instagram, a, um, a thread on Facebook, what happens from there? Because that, that's something for us, we think about, we think a lot about what happens when you, when somebody first becomes aware and they think they might be a fan, right? What's the journey that they take, you take, you put them on from there? I, I recently became, uh, became aware of the term pink ghetto. What is that? <laughs> it's about uh, work where the overwhelming majority of people who do the work are female, mm. and in the tech world, right? Community organizing is that they don't, you know, they, don't add, they don't add the word organizing on it, right? They just call it community, call it community management because they see it as oh, those are soft skills, those are less important, and so therefore they don't put a lot of don't put a lot of work into it. But the people who do do that work. Do have ridiculous skills and they're able to play a hashtag. They can play a forum. They can play like, play any group of people like an orchestra Mm -hmm. and they're really good. They're the ones responsible for that first point of entry. Mm -hmm. If somebody has a bad experience uh, on their first time, right? Maybe not even from within the organization, but by people looking to, to target, Mm -hmm. right? That hashtag. Um, then that could keep them from being able to become more involved, more engaged. The community manager ends up being the one who has to actually understand not what somebody thinks about the product. But they have to think about what does it mean for them? What else do they care about? Right? Why, what is what role does this actually fill? You you have a lot at stake in being able to make this work. There's a lot of work that needs to be done there, a lot of leadership has to be done there. But the actual flow is gonna to have to come from the edges, right? But there aren't models that you can kind of rely on because of the fact that you recognize and you understand the value of inclusivity. So much of what I've known of the history of Black Lives Matter and then so much of what you're, you're describing to me as the challenges and sometimes struggles of it remind me of some of the strongest internet memes. Right? Where they spread like wildfire because they connect to an emotion. Because you can, the people can pack a lot into it from their, from their own selves, right? And that helps it move along. But when it moves beyond your, beyond your realm, um, what are the things that make it sort of, uh, stick together? The best internet memes are the ones where you understand what it means. You understand why this is a, a cat joke. You understand why this fail video is funny. Understand how to apply that to an organization. Right. I think there are models for, for understanding it, but it's going to take a lot of discussion with folks who are actually involved to figure out, um, okay, what do these things mean? What can they mean to us? And how do we, how can we use it to build structure upon which everyone else can kind of contribute their own idea to, like it is memes? That's where you started off, right? Mm-hmm. I love that. Um, God. I want
2: to keep talking to you about this. I know, there's so much to talk about. My brain is exploding. I feel like there's so much more to this conversation, and we just scratch the surface. I'm sure like everyone, sometimes we feel like we're the only ones going through this. And oftentimes when we try to talk through technology with people, there's this weird reverence of the technology and not what it's in the service of. And so this conversation felt so generative because it's like, no, ultimately it's about love and relationship and connection and values and feeling and emotion.
4: It's funny, having come from a space that looked like organizing and then moving over to a space that looked like entertainment, now I'm having these thoughts around this conversation about, okay, how do you actually bring this back into and test it in spaces that feel like direct action? How do you actually test it in places that feel like civic engagement? How do you test it in places that feel like sustained community? We have to to kind of wake people up to remembering that this was the reason why we were all here. Right. Love, empowerment, just getting people together to form community, form family. This is going to be a meaningful space to kind of figure out now. So
0: love, empowerment, community, family. Those are not words I have typically associated with the Hollywood fan community before, so actually that is something I'm really
3: walking away with right now. But maybe fan building and movement building share more in common than we think. I think that's what this conversation has revealed, is that the space in between those two worlds is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Overlapping. Yeah, yeah. And what would it look like if movements built out their communities the way that Hollywood creates fandoms? What I'm going to keep reminding myself
0: is that relationships are at the core of this.
3: Yeah, I feel like what I was hearing from Kenyatta and in the entertainment industry context is that online community managers or peer leaders are really actually relationship builders and they are in conversation with fans. And there's a much more emotional and sensing nature to the work that I think may have been lost a lot in the social justice sector.
0: The powerful part of all of this is that online community managers can come from the people who are part of the network and sort of volunteer. They step up. Um, They're the ones that create the Facebook group. They're the ones who are part of the community but helping to manage it. At the same time, there are ways that movements or organizations, companies can... Hire and bring on these community managers to to play the same role. The secret sauce really is, though, it's not about that organization necessarily or the talking points or the most important messages of the week. It's about the role that the online community manager plays in sort of living deeply within those fan communities, whether they're movement communities or pop culture fan communities to really understand what drives the community, what brings them together, and to help sort of support the, the joy, as Sean said, in that community to make it powerful enough to live and embody and fight for the kind of values we want in the world. What we have learned from earlier episodes this season is that the social justice sector is waking up to the fact that they need to go deeper. People like ai and Poo and Saketsoni are empowering their membership, activating them through deeply personal stories.
3: And the effect of that storytelling is hard to measure on a statistical level because it strikes at the core of the listener. It's about changing how they feel and it's incredibly powerful.
0: So couple this with the ways audiences are shaping and influencing Hollywood and creating their own authentic stories. There is an unprecedented power shift underway in the entertainment industry.
3: There is. And on our next episode, we are going to talk to somebody who understands power in the entertainment industry better than most of us. Rashad Robinson, executive director of Color of Change, will tie up this first season of Wonderland with us in a conversation about who has the power now, who needs it, and how they can get it.
2: How are we, like, really employing the best possible thinking to solve problems that can feel intractable?
3: Next time on Wonderland.
0: Wonderland is made possible with the support from the Nathan Cummings Foundation, Unbound Philanthropy, and the Pop Culture Collaborative. Nancy Vitali produced the series. Destry Sibley is our editorial producer.
3: This episode was audio engineered by Duff Harris and Alex Thompson. Corinne Smith and Kyle Morisak were our audio technicians. Rigoberto Lara is our research assistant. This episode was recorded at the Awareness Group Studios and Harvest Works in New York City and at Experimental Sound Studio in Chicago. Special thanks to Kevin Plessner, Adam Vida, Naomi Briley, and Malaika Parker.
0: Visit our website, thisiswonderland.us, for resources to develop your own culture change strategy. And there are photos and videos of our conversation with Sean, Alicia, and Kenyatta, and links to the work mentioned in this episode.